We'll be finishing the book of Colossians. And just to give you sort of a, a what's next outlook, uh, next week we're going to start a three-week uh, series during Lent uh, that's called Tears of the Sun, S-O-N. Uh, and we're looking at Jesus' laments as he um, was headed towards the cross. Um, and so basically the later chapters of Matthew, will look at some of his lament uh, prayers in those chapters. And then we'll hit Easter, and we'll hang out in Easterland for a couple weeks, uh, looking at the resurrection accounts in a few of the Gospels. And then we will start the book of Matthew uh, in April. So we are going in fun places, um, but today we are finishing out uh, the letter of Colossians. So um, if you want to turn there, it's page 983 in the Pew Bible, or in your own Bible, we'll be in Colossians. We'll actually be in the whole book, um, but we'll get to that. So... It's our last day studying this letter, and, you know, we, we started it with a bang, and so we're going to go out with a bang. And by bang, I mean we're going to read the whole thing, like the whole thing together uh, here in church. Um, so that should be really fun. But before we do, I, want, I just want to remind you of a few themes to watch out for as we read through it. Uh, if the gospel is Jesus plus nothing... What does the letter of Colossians have to say about Jesus to us? So first, I want you to watch out for the cosmic portrait of Jesus that Paul paints. And so this, as a theme, is the position of Christ. Where is Christ in relation to all other powers and authorities in the universe? Where is he? And this theme counters the inclination that we have as modern people to basically to relegate Jesus as one of the many options available to us in spirituality. Okay, so that's the first theme, the position of Christ. Second, if Jesus is as cosmically significant as Paul says he is, then where does that leave us as his followers? For Paul, those who place their trust in Jesus are what Paul calls with him. And so over and over you'll see that we have been buried with him. We have been raised with him. We are united with him. And so this has ginormous implications for our lives. If we're with him, then we have so many things. We have forgiveness. We have purpose. We have identity. We have a path forward. We have a future hope. All of, things, all of these things are because we're with him. And so this is the theme of our solidarity with Christ. So first we have the position of Christ, and then our solidarity with Christ. But finally, what does the position of Christ and the solidarity of our, our solidarity with Christ have to do with what we do with our lives? You know, what does that have to do with what you do for work? What, who you are in your family your roles, your responsibilities, what you're doing tomorrow, your schooling, all these things. What does this have to do with that? And Paul is not just concerned with your fate post-death, with your, your spiritual, you know, where you are spiritually. He has enormous concerns, as we'll see in the second half of the book, with your life today. What you do and all of these vocations that you have. And so, 
Several members of our church are going to come. We're going to read through this entire letter front to back. So I want you guys to follow along carefully, uh, paying attention to those three themes, the position of Christ, our solidarity with Christ, and our life with Christ. And then at the end, we'll take a zoom-in look at the last couple of verses, which we haven't yet covered, uh, of Paul's final goodbyes before we then just move on to respond in worship. All right, how's that sound? All right, Melissa, you want to kick us off? All right, so go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Good morning. Um, Colossians 1, 1. <laughs> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of the God in truth, or of God in truth, just as you learned in it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made, his no made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in the manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The preeminence of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which in Christ and you, the hope of glory. Him who proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen my face, have, have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, I say this in order to know one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Alive in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let no one disqualify you. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink 
or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These are indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Put on the new self. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in, in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now... You must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open 
to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each, each person. Final greetings. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Go ahead and stand up as we finish it out. Chapter 4, verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's stay standing while we pray. Father God, thank you for this letter. Uh, thank you that we've been able to just read it through. Uh, Lord, I pray that the contents of this letter as we've reflected on them over the last several months uh, would just resound uh, in us and spill out of us uh, as we seek to be faithful to you and your gospel in a culture very, very distant from this one, but also very similar uh, in, in us acknowledging the supremacy of Jesus Christ in a culture that puts him as an option on the shelf. And so I pray that uh, as we finish it out this morning, uh, that your spirit would convict us uh, in these last words and um, be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, have a seat. All right, so that was fun. Thank you, everyone who read. Uh, so in these last couple of verses that we haven't covered yet, 15 through 18, uh, Paul is giving his final goodbyes, uh, very, very final, uh, and they, but they clue us into fall, uh, Paul's final priorities. And these final priorities are very much relational. And so as we move on from studying this letter in depth, 
I want us to remember the corporate nature of what this letter has said to us. This isn't just about you and Jesus. This is a corporate reality. You know, chapter 1, verse 18 makes it clear. It says, He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. And so we are in this together. This is the note that Paul ends on. Not me, us. And so what I want us to notice is three aspects of this relational priority in Paul's closing. We see a relational church. We see relational obedience. And we see Christ-like relationships. And so looking back at verse 15 through 16, we see a relational church. Paul says, Give my greetings to the brothers, and it could be brothers and sisters at Laodicea, and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, see, or have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And so first, Paul doesn't just say goodbye to them. No, he asks that they pass on his greetings to the church in the next town. And if you remember from way back in in our first week, I put up a map and it showed the Tri-City region that Colossae was part of. It's Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis. They're not that far from each other, like within 10 miles of each other. And so they formed a Tri-City region in this part of ancient Turkey. And so they had relational connections. Uh, the, the guy that we read about a couple times while we read through it, Epaphras, he likely started all three of these congregations in this region. And then Nympha here is, is likely a woman and likely a wealthy widow that had a large enough house to host a house church in the other town called Laodicea. And so Paul singles her out and singles this house church out for a greeting. And then he asked them to trade his letters back and forth. There's a letter to the Colossians, and then there's a letter from Laodicea. And so, of course, the big question is, where on earth is the letter from Laodicea? Right? You know, he clearly refers to this letter, but then he says there's another letter, and you should read it. And we're like, ah, I want to read it. Right? Where is it? And so, of course, theories abound. (laughs) And so, you know, there's a theory that the letter is actually the letter of Ephesians. That's a theory. There's other theories that maybe it's another anonymous New Testament letter, one of the few that we have. Or maybe it's lost, you know, which is more likely the case. But the fact is, we have no idea where this letter from Laodicea is, what it said. And what we have to do is trust that we have exactly the New Testament that the Holy Spirit wanted us to have. But Paul asks that they not be an island church, disconnected from the other local churches, and especially that the individuals in this church not be an island in the midst of the congregation, disconnected from those around them. He asks that they honor the relationships that they have with these other churches. He asks that they remember that they are not in this alone. 
There are other like-minded, Jesus-following churches that are grinding it out alongside them. And so for us, we can take that. We, we then are to keep alive our connections with the church outside our walls. Both locally here in Capitol Hill, regionally, globally, we are to care about the health of the Capital C Church which is exciting because it reminds us that we are part of something that's bigger than us. We are part of this body, the church, of which Jesus is the head. And yet we are a part. So great. So that's a relational church that Paul wants them to go away with. And then relational obedience. Look at verse 17. He says, And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And so Paul singles out this guy, Archippus, to follow through on something. And so, you know, we're left scratching our heads a little bit. We don't know much about Archippus, although we do know some. He is mentioned in the book of Philemon, which is another short, very short letter that Paul actually probably includes in the package that he gives to the letter carriers of Colossians. And so in the intro to Philemon, we find out that Archippus was a Colossian local, a believer, part of the church that met in Philemon's house. And then Paul calls him a fellow soldier. A fellow soldier. And this title that Paul gives Archippus is not a common title. Paul does not use this title lightly. He only uses it one other time in all of his letters, and that's of Epaphroditus that we talked about back in Philippians. And so, you know, fellow soldier, what, what imagery does that evoke for us? I'm guessing there's at least one veteran of the armed forces here. I, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know if any of you are are veterans of the armed forces, but I imagine that the relationships you form in that setting, in the military, I I imagine that that relationship is one of bold exhortation. And it kind of has to be that way. You, You have to not be afraid to call each other out when you see a need. Right? Because you're alongside one another in battle. So you have to know that you know that you know that this person has your back and that you have theirs. And so Paul apparently has this relationship with Archippus. He publicly, in a letter that clearly is meant to be read beyond this community, he publicly calls him to fulfill the ministry he has in the Lord. And we don't know what that is or why Paul is singling him out. But we see here that obedience to Christ's calling, at least for Paul, was a relational responsibility. That as we lean in together to our corporate calling, we can speak prophetically over one another. Through prayer and in love. We can discern our callings together and respond in obedience. We can see in one another giftings that we might not see on our own and call that out 
in one another. Can tap each other on the shoulder. Say, hey, have you ever thought about entering into this? That literally happened to me. In 2015, I think it was maybe 2014, I don't know, about 10 years ago, the pastor who founded this church, Justin Thomas, I was literally, I think I was playing with a little kid in, in like a nursery room at our home church. He literally tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, when are you going to become a pastor? And I was like, get away from me, Satan. <laughs> like, no thanks. But God had that for me. I had, I had no idea, and I would have not chosen that. I would not have seen that. And yet someone dear to me, who I trusted, who I knew loved me, was willing to call that out, was willing to, to encourage that in me. And that, of course, requires love. It requires trust. It requires unity. But Paul demonstrates it here that this is possible. This relational obedience, this corporate obedience we can walk in. And so lastly, so we have relational church, relational obedience, and finally, Christ-like relationships. Look at verse 18. Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. You know, some of us who you know, are modern people who aren't used to ancient letter writing are like, well, well what is this? Like, hasn't he been writing the whole time? Like, this is weird. But Paul, in accordance with the custom of his day, would likely or definitely used a letter writer, someone who he dictated the letter to, who wrote it down. And, but then also in accordance with the custom of the day, he would grab the pen at the very end <laughs> and jot down his greeting, saying, you know, hey, just so you know, I'm here. I'm all good, you know. And so he would do that to offer a personal greeting. And so here he does that. And what does he, what does he say? He, he says two things. Remember my chains, and then grace be with you. And so he asks that they remember his, his situation, his suffering, because he's in prison right now. He's under lock and key. But then he also offers them a benediction to close out the letter of grace. And so, uh, in verse 3 of this chapter, we looked at a couple weeks ago, when, when Paul is asking for prayer, and Stephanie read it this morning, it says, you know, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. And so, we see him acknowledging his imprisonment and asking for prayer, but what he asks for prayer there is an open door to the gospel, to share with people despite his imprisonment. And so back in, in that section, the, what came to mind was that Paul, in his personal circumstances, put that second to his priority for the gospel. And so his circumstances were almost an afterthought. But here he simply asked them to remember his chains. Paul isn't just a tool for spreading the gospel. You know, he is a human being. He is in need of support and love as he goes through suffering. And he isn't afraid here to ask for it. And this is what, how we are to be too. You know, our relationships don't stop at mission. Our relationships aren't just for the sake of mission. 
They aren't just for the sake of the outside world. We are to lean in to our relationships that we have in the body of Christ. To bear one another's burdens. To bear one another's sorrows. And also joys. And just as Jesus sought to be known by his disciples, we are not to be closed off to one another. And as we looked at last week in our, our, our chat about how messy church can be, this is not always easy. It's not always easy to keep your heart open to relationship within the body that's full of all sorts of different people from all different walks of life and backgrounds. But that's what we're called to. It's Christ-like relationships. And so Paul then finishes how he does in all of his letters in some way. He offers a benediction of grace. And grace is where he started the letter back in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And so he starts it that way and this is how he ends it. Grace, the word is charis, where we get charity. A grace means favor that is unmerited. Grace, for Paul, represents the powerful action of God of love in the world. Let me rephrase that. God's powerful action of love in the world. That is what grace represents for Paul. The reality is that God has done something that is cosmos-altering in Jesus Christ. He has done it. And the church, of which we are included, if you're a believer in Jesus, the church just happens to be the group of people that acknowledge what he has done. The church is not a group of people that check all of the righteousness boxes. On the contrary, the church is full of those who know they have not checked all the righteousness boxes. And so Paul emphasizes this grace in all his letters. God initiated and did something. We merely respond. Anything that says we earn our way to God, we check these boxes and appease his wrath, we do these things to look good before others and before him, none of that is representative of the grace that Paul refers to here and the grace that is the foundation of Christianity itself and Paul emphasizes this grace all over the place but especially there's a great passage in his letter to Titus listen to these words because they emphasize the 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 order of operations here grace came first period he says this for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous 
for good works. I love that passage because it talks about good works. You know, some of us, when we hear good works, we think, oh, I got I to get them right in my head. I, got, I can't really worry about good works because that's not what gets me into heaven. Of course not. The grace of God is what gets you into heaven, is what gets you into God's favor. But he has good works for you to walk in, to do, to be formed in, and to be zealous for, it says. But Jesus Christ, and in the letter to Titus, it makes it clear, Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. He is the focal point of God's powerful action of love in the world. So that's what Paul ends on. And that's what Colossians is all about. This gospel, this grace is all founded on one name. The name that is above every name. Jesus Christ. The name at which every single knee that's ever lived will bow. To the glory of God the Father at the very end of time. And so I want to be so clear because I talk to people all the time in my secular job that they think they know what Christians believe. Christians are the people who try not to swear. No! That is such a lame definition of Christians. Christians are the people that get down on people for having fun. No! That is not what Christians are. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, remember this. What Christians hold to is not a list of rules from an ancient dusty book. What we hold to is the story of a God who created us in his image, which means to reflect him, to represent him in this world. And when we, as a human race, created by him, when we rejected his authority over us, and thereafter have experienced all manner of evil, suffering, and death, this God sought us out by becoming one of us, by taking evil, suffering, and death into himself, experiencing the death that we brought about in order to rescue us, in order to bring us back to himself. That's what Christians believe. That is the good news. It's something that actually happened in history, the gospel. And it's all wrapped up in Jesus. God's powerful action of love in the world is wrapped up in Jesus. Friend, God loves you so much. He wants you to be part of of the, the group of people, as, Ty, as that letter to Titus said, uh, to purify for himself a people. He wants you to be part of that group of people that make up what he calls the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. The story goes that God the Father is looking for a bride for his son. Don't reject his offer of love for you. He wants you to be part of that bride. He has gone to unimaginable lengths. He has spared no expense to purchase you with his own blood, to ransom you, to rescue you, as we read in Colossians 1, to deliver you from the domain of darkness, 
to transfer you to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I beg you to say yes to his offer of love and grace to you. Jesus is creating a people. This is a group thing. And yeah, it's made up of individuals that each have to say yes. We each have to surrender to him. But for the sake of the whole, he is making us into a people. Not me, us. No, I'm supposed to be an asset to your growth in Christ and you to mine. And since we have Jesus, we have all we need. We have forgiveness. We have cleansing. We have victory. We have identity. We have a way forward. He is enough. Let's move forward as a Jesus-following church together. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this picture of Jesus that Paul paints in response to this church's need and they're dealing with their own issues and Paul just gives them a clear solution. Just look at Jesus. Look at who he is. Look at what he's done. Look at where history is headed, which is towards him as Lord and ruler of all. I pray for each person this morning that they would find themselves uh, and understand where they are in relation to Jesus. That they would surrender their lives to the good Lord, to the good God who sought them out, who pursued them. And I pray that we as Calvary the Hill, this community of faith here in Capitol Hill would be a beacon of hope, not because we do all these awesome things, although we want to do awesome things, but because we represent, reflect, and give glory to Jesus Christ as the one hope of the world. And yeah, we want to be his hands and feet. We want to be messy and and we want to get in and serve this community. But we, we do it all in the name and for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord. Please pour out your spirit on us this morning. Anyone who is carrying heavy burdens, anyone who is wrestling with doubt, uh, wrestling with circumstances, wrestling with relationships, marriages, uh, friendships, work, anything that's causing suffering and pain, Lord, I pray that you'd meet each one where they're at this morning. Help them to know that they can cry out to you as we will look at, you, at Jesus crying out to you himself in the next few weeks. I thank you that that is who you are and what you, what you invite in Jesus' name. All right, we're going to.